Hello, and welcome to the next episode of Trials with Maya Z, brought to you by TrialHub, a data intelligence platform that helps clinical research organizations and sponsors plan clinical trials. This podcast is about how we can make clinical trials more successful and patient-friendly. I am your host, Maya Z, and in every episode, I will be interviewing a leading expert from various industries in order to discuss some of the major challenges and brainstorm how we can solve them. Let's get started. Hello, everyone, and thank you again for joining Trials with Maya Z. I'm very happy that today I managed to bring to, uh, to our to a discussion, Jackie, uh, a good friend of mine who I met on one of the Costry conferences um, by Cam, literally, but it turned out to be one of the most insightful people that I met. And uh, since then, we've been studying about all sorts of challenges within the clinical research industry. And I decided to invite Jackie today because it kind of became very trendy uh, to speak about diversity in clinical trials, uh, to include more people, different people, clinical trials. And when we speak about diversity, we sometimes forget that even, I mean, kids, pediatric research is a way to diversify clinical trials. And Jackie is one of the people, one of the experts that I know that's super passionate about pediatric research, not only passionate, but super experienced in that area. Jackie, why don't you first start with introducing yourself? Hi, thank you, Maya. Yeah, it's, it's been a lovely time getting to know you better over the last few years. Um, so my name's Jackie Whiteway. Uh, I've been in the industry for over 18 years and I'm a scientist by training. Um, and I was in clinical research. I was in a small biotech. And as I got interested in the clinical research industry, I went into a, a CRO. And a CRO was a fantastic way to learn a lot about the industry and lots of different types of trials. Um, through that, the bulk of my time, I got into feasibility, which is really how I connected with you, Maya. Yeah. And, and, and feasibility, really getting into clinical trial planning, um, not site selection, but, but true feasibility. And when I was working on those trials, the most interesting are those that are the perhaps the least feasible or the most challenging. So those are usually uh, rare disease indications, which are often pediatric populations. So through that work, um, I got really interested in the pediatric um, populations and the challenges there. And... Um, and then at the CRO I was working at, we started a Center for Pediatric Clinical Development, and I joined that in 2018. And so uh, it's an icon Center for Pediatric Clinical Development where I could have my full-time day job focused on pediatrics. Um, yeah, so it's really exciting. So it's bringing my science, again, the scientific background, but really learning how to address the the challenges that pediatric trials mm-hmm. encounter. So speaking about challenge uh, in, in pediatric research, what makes it so hard to plan pediatric clinical trials, Jack? Well, there's a number of things. At its heart, in a way, it's a good thing. Um, I mentioned the rare pediatric overlap. Kids don't get that sick, right? Mm-hmm. So there aren't a lot 
of kids that are six. When you're talking about a pediatric trial and you are super aware of this, recruitment rates, how yeah. do you find these patients, right? So there aren't that many of them finding them. Uh, you're dealing with logistics and lots of sites and perhaps lots of countries and really trying to find these patients, um, these kids. So, so that's one challenge that, that comes perhaps from a good thing. Another is you're treating the whole family. You, mm -hmm. you aren't just um, dealing with one person. You, you are addressing a whole family, really a whole community. You, you, there's um, siblings, uh, there's parents, there's work schedules, there's schools. There's so much to consider when, when you're, you're engaging with kids. Um, and, and, and the communicating with the child, that's, mm. that's a challenge, right? Um, you need to make sure that they understand what they're going through as well as the parents or the guardians. Um, and that sort of thing. I would say also as an overarching challenge is fear. And I, I mean fear on a whole lot of levels and we'll probably get to that. Nice. Um, as an industry or, or as a uh, species, yeah. uh, children, children are vulnerable, right? Um, and you go back in time and perhaps children weren't perceived, they weren't uh, perceived the way we look at children now. You know, you think of um, the smallpox experiments, just taking mm. kids and treating them, right? And then we swung the other way where we were like, oh, let's not treat kids because they're vulnerable and, and that's terrible. And frankly, um, what we and, and I experience a lot uh, with family and friends, you mm. say, oh, what do you do? Clinical trials. Oh, what are that? Well, more people know what clinical trials are now, but yeah. um, I've on pediatric clinical trials and they're like, whoa, that's, that's how can you experiment on children? To which you respond, well, the medicines that are used on kids, most of them haven't been tested on yeah. kids. So is that any better, right? So yeah. you're using untested medicines and in a completely unregulated atmosphere. So there's fear to test or experiment with kids. And so we say, um, you know, we want to protect children through research from research mm -hmm. and, and that's where they're that's coming from there's mm -hmm. also fear um from we industry professionals who while me and you you know we we have kids and the first thing we think of is would i put my kid in this trial or or um really relating to the to the people who are in the trial if you step back and you look in our world, and again, you're very familiar with this when you're using data to try to find recruitment rates and that sort of thing. I mean, uh, they don't look good when you're looking at recruitment rates for kids um, and that sort of thing. And then you're doing things like you're having to deal with parents and assenting as well as informed consent and a lot more logistics and opening up sites for fewer patients a lot of the time. And so there's costs and logistics. So that's another kind of fear, right? So on paper, when you're going to plan the trial, and um, it's a lot of work compared to the adult trials for less um, outcome, maybe, on, on the surface. 
case. I, I would argue that's not the case. But when you first come to it, yeah, it's fear of the unknown. It's not fitting into the cookie yeah. cutter. You got to think a little differently, right? You think one of the reasons why we've connected is we think differently. We want to think creative. Don't be afraid of doing something different. Look at where we are right now in the industry and with COVID and decentralized trials. It's a good thing. A lot of people were already thinking differently. Otherwise, we'd be in a lot yeah. of trouble. So Maybe with the pediatric research, we just need to be one level more creative. But you're right. right. But yet, yet, you're absolutely right. You mentioned decentralized clinical trials. So I wonder, do you think now decentralized clinical trials are making pediatric research better? Like, have you seen any stories to tell maybe that's worth better now? Mm. Well, that's the million dollar or billion dollar question. Uh, We're asking that all the time. As with anything else and as with kids, I'm going to back up a little bit. Uh With pediatric trials, we've got a whole bunch of adults who have been doing clinical trials for a long time. And a lot of the stuff we try to copy and paste in kids. Yeah. Trials. And it doesn't, it doesn't work. And that's where the fear comes in and like, oh, I don't know how to do this. Let's just get, let's just not do it. Um, with decentralized trials, there's a lot of assumptions made. This goes for adults too, in that, oh, everybody will like doing decentralized trials. They'll, they'll like having at home visits. They'll like to have telephone calls instead of visiting. But is that actually the case? Um, and I think you've seen there's been some work, I've seen some surveys and that sort of thing that's showing that's not always the case. Yes, it is the case for some things, it's not for others. And and uh, like we talked before, putting ourselves in the shoes, like we can imagine being a patient. I'm like, oh, there's sometimes you want to be in front of the doctor. And yeah. um, for kids, though, it the answer is yes and no, right? Because, of course, there are situations, you've got these siblings, you've got school, and you're supposed to do this visit. I mean, a clinical trial comes with all these visits. And what if it's just um, a few questions or, or a check-in? And, and uh, you can do that on the phone, right? Can you do a purely decentralized trial with kids? So far, um, no haven't seen that. The only full-on decentralized trial I've seen is for adults. Um, for kids, but you certainly can bring a lot more there. But what I would say is, and this might inspire fear and in the professionals again, is it needs to be flexible and adjustable, not just based on the trial, but on the families. Like, do you want to come in for this visit or do you want to do it on the phone? Do you want to have home health? I mean, home health sounds great. Like, look, this this family, this dad has to take his kids in to get a blood test for this trial. It's on, on top of the um, standard of care. And that's a whole other conversation, right? We should be trying to make the standard of care aligned. So you've got to go for the blood test. Or you could have home health come and do the blood test. Well, that sounds fantastic. And I admit, when I first heard that, of course everybody will want that. But step back and think, maybe they don't. Like you're having a professional come into your house and seeing your house. You might not feel comfortable about that. Maybe you have a reactive dog with me. So you've got to find somewhere to put them. But maybe a lot of people do. So I I think it's a flexibility. Ask the patient, right? Ask the family. 
and yeah. be adjustable. And again, there's a fear there because when you were trying to plan your trial and you've got all of your um, milestones laid out and that sort of thing, it's like, should we make this visit remote or should we make it in person? Maybe that's not the right question. It should be, let's make it available. Yeah. Let's How can we make it remote? You're bringing a big topic here because that's something that I've been also thinking about a lot. Uh, that we shouldn't think, like you said, we shouldn't be the decision makers. Should we include home visits or like lab visits or whatever visits basically or uh, wearables at home or not? And the decision should be with the families, with, um, with the patients, with the kids, like whoever basically. It's about the entire decentralized movement. The decision should be with uh, the patients and the caregivers. The only thing caveat thing here is that it's super complicated from the logistic perspective to make this possible. So yes, it's great. It's, it's ideal to provide all these, you know, uh, options people for them to decide, but how do you um, make it realistic and how, how, how do you handle logistics and how do you then ensure safety? I think maybe with the time we'll get to that. I think everyone dreams about this world, but let's when this will come. So, okay. Um, I understand that with decentralized clinical trials, like there are pluses and minuses, but is there anything that we should change in pediatric research so that we, it's more successful now? Well, I think we need to start thinking about it earlier. Mm, okay. Um, and, and I mean, I think we can say that for, for all again, but even more for pediatrics. And one advantage of pediatrics, again, um, is that normally, I mean, you are the bulk of trials start in adults and then they go to pediatrics. Now, that's a whole other topic, too, because there's this huge delay in getting these drugs, these safe drugs to kids. And, and we want to um, reduce that time. Mm -hmm. um, but at the same time, you know, you, you do want to make sure it's safe in adults, too. It is a, a vulnerable yeah. population. And that, again, is a whole other topic, you know, doing things like extrapolation trials and, and different types of controls and, and that sort of thing. Um, definitely better people than I can speak to. Oh, I'm, I'm almost losing my train of thought there. So what, what do we want to change? To, to me, it's there's a lot of things. We can change. And, and that planning early, we have the opportunity because you have the adult trials. The regulatory authorities, the main ones, right, mm -hmm. you know, um, in Europe and the U.S., require pediatric plans. So that's okay. trying to encourage that. Um, in the industry, we definitely see a variable understanding of, of when to start doing that planning. And yeah. also... Um, it's seen as a, oh, got to do it as yeah. opposed to one more thing that's right. Yeah. Mm. And, and what we've seen with successful companies, so I've talked to um, a number of people at a, a bunch of companies from the pediatric perspective, successful mm. companies are the ones who actually put the pediatrics first. So they're planning their adult trials. They have an asset, right? They get together and they go, what, what are, you know, what are all the different trials we want to do? What are all the indications this drug can be used for or whatever? But they should also be asking, 
is, is this relevant for pediatrics? Even if it's 10 years down the line, you know? Yeah. And let's start planning for that now. And by planning for that now, they can do a number of things. Um, they'll get their pediatric plans in place. There's incentives, you know, if, mm-hmm. if they do these. Um, they'll get them done on time. They'll be efficient. Uh, they'll get the right testing done with the fewest uh, number of patients. I mean, one one thing is getting the adolescents into the adult trials. Um, mm. That's almost a low-hanging fruit. Um, yes, sometimes it means a few different sites that you have to use. It's a different population, and adolescents are a whole different shell. If I got teenagers, so it's like, well, they're they're not small adults, but they're not kind of big kids either. They're they're their own um interesting uh population so but but still you know that that is almost a low-hanging getting adolescents into Mm. the adult trials but Mm. you can't do that at the drop of a hat right Mm. and if you do you're gonna make mistakes there there there's so many things quite rightly all the hoops we need to go through um for good reasons and so start Planning them right at the beginning. Ask those questions. So to companies, to sponsors, and again, I've spoken directly with a couple of sponsors who they kind of what I would call a pediatric champion within the organization who says, let's ask this first. Um, It's a small, small question. So I I hope that answers your your question. Uh, What should be done differently early? Bring in expertise. So for those pediatric plans. Um, for the protocols, oh my goodness, the number of copy paste from adults uh, uh, protocols, and I won't say any details here because you know they're real <laughs> case scenarios, and and people here like the things you see in the eligibility criteria. Yeah, things regarding looking at smoking for neonates and stuff like that, and you're like, obviously, this is being copy pasted. So yeah. Think early, bring in experts. Mm-hmm. Um, and the fear enters there. They're like, oh, no, that's like too much, too much cost. We don't want to think about it. Or we'll, we'll cross that bridge when we get there. It's a lot easier to cross that bridge if, if yeah. you planned it. And it's not as scary as you think. There, there does mm-hmm. sometimes, I mean, I'd be lying if I didn't say there were some extra logistics and challenges. Mm, of um, course. But they... You're not the first, of right? Course. Yeah. And if you are the first, take advantage of that. I mean, that's kind of exciting. Exactly. Right? Yeah. I like yeah. your attitude. Let me ask you about the, these pediatric plastics. You said bring some expertise, someone that thinks about pediatric research early on, but that's not realistic for most of the companies, for most of the small biotech companies. Like they rarely have enough resources for adult clinical trials. And what about pediatric research? So how much? What's your observation? How many of these biotech companies actually even know that they should be plucking like these, that they should be con- creating these pediatric plans? Mm. I think there is kind of like lack of awareness in, from, from what I've experienced. What do you think? There is. There is lack of awareness. And of course, in the pediatric uh, world, quite rightly, there's been a lot of changes um, in the regulatory agencies and the requirements, I mean, the legislations, they're changing all the time. You're aware of a number that's been changing um, recently. And, and being from Canada, for example, Canada is bringing, has finally got some real pediatric um, legislation. Those changes are happening all the time. And that's where expertise helps. 
um, the Race for Children Act. I don't know if you're familiar with, uh, but it came into effect in 2020. And there was a few years lead up to that. And yet we're still finding some companies, usually small, who aren't aware of it. You know, um, I mean, one of the big changes the Race for Children Act has is for pediatric oncology and as an FDA um, requirement is that uh, for cancer drugs, um, even if there's orphan drug designation, even if it's a rare disease, um, typically you don't have to do your pediatric plan, which is, uh, but now you do for oncology. And so the mindset of a lot of people, oh, we don't have to do that because it's a rare disease. Pediatric cancer is, is technically a rare disease. And, um, and you're like, no, no, you do. And if you don't have that plan, you can't submit. Um, your NDA or your BLA. So now you've got a little bit of a delay. There could be a little bit of a rush. And we've seen uh, a few examples of that. And there's the expense, you say. Well, uh, I think pediatrics really brings a lot of passion and dedication from a lot of people, ourselves included, right? It's sometimes just that question. Um, when they're, when you're I would seek out the expertise and it doesn't always need to be paid for. Uh, just talking to the FDA, I mean, the FDA, I'm yeah. um, being US-centric here, but of course the EMA too, they, they want to have those questions come to them and they have a lot of free resources to discuss that with you. And then really early on in stages, as you know, with feasibility as well, a lot of the organizations such as you know, the CROs, there's some free expertise to be provided there as well. I hope you're enjoying this episode. If you find this topic relevant, you'll find it helpful to book a demo with our team on trialhub.com. Since 2019, we've supported more than 3,000 clinical trials with country, site, and patient feasibility. We'd love to show you how and help you get your trial right from the start. And now, back to my guests. So, Jackie, in, in a lot of cases, you mentioned adolescents. And I wonder, is there a big difference between adolescents' clinical trials or like younger kids? Right. Or, or maybe adolescents and adults as well. Like maybe if you can just compare what's the difference between these three categories. Yeah, yeah. Well, yes and no again. So adolescents, as you're well aware, I mean, they're in this interesting situation where they um, need, they desire a lot more autonomy, right? Mm. And they have a lot more autonomy and they have a lot more going on that they're doing themselves. And the grownups have a lot less control, right? Yeah. So with at least with the little kids and you're doing a trial and you're like, okay, we're going to your visit or, you know, the nurse is coming, you're here and, and everything. With an adolescent, there's less control, um, so there's a lot more needing of connecting um, by staff, by clinical trial staff, by connecting and really understanding the adolescent because you mm -hmm. and, and all of us and consulting with them, giving them that autonomy. Now, at the same time, it's still their parents who have to give permission, yeah. um, the informed consent, right? And, and then with that, you have a whole host of other um, things that come into play. For example... You're dealing with sexual health. You're dealing with birth control and you're dealing with pregnancy. Mm -hmm. And who talks 
to them about that. So again, that comes yeah. to really how um, in a clinical trial, you get pregnant, uh, you're typically kicked out of the trial. Mm. Now, if you were in that trial, um, you would be told, okay, this is why you're out of the trial. Now imagine a child, a, a teenager, yeah, and their parent has signed the permission for them to be in the trial. Well, the parent is going to be told while they're kicked out of the trial. But the your your medical age of consent and your legal age of consent is different in a lot of countries. So mm. you're dealing with a huge you're dealing with those types of um, new different different considerations. So it's more challenging with that. At the same time, um, you're getting to engage more directly with your patient. So if you're talking to them right. and you're treating them with respect, uh, then then that's helpful. And and then biologically, yes, they're still growing, but with regards to weight and and metabolism, it's a lot more similar to adults. And so that's why we really encourage looking at the addition of adolescents into mm. adult trials um, and young adults, right? So we, it's the AYA population, the adolescent young adults, AYA mm. um, population. This arbitrary cutoff at 18 or 19 or, or 16, depending where you are, yeah. um, but typically we think of 18. It's quite arbitrary um, when it comes yeah. to physiology, right? And then from a medical perspective, often you're having the pediatric physicians or pediatric sites who are following those kids past 18 um, in cancer it can be up to 29. So, so even when um, the logistics, the fear of trying to address those logistics, uh, and, and so a lot of the time we as professionals and sponsors are like, oh. Let's just leave them out for now, perhaps, because let's just focus on these sites. We don't want to open up yeah. different sites or that sort of thing. Well, realistically, you should be anyhow. It's just better to yeah. think of it. Um, yeah. Bring in the professionals. Um, give them a control. You know, talk, communicate. Communication is a huge thing, Maya. We haven't even got to. What would I like to change, he'd ask. Yeah, that, that is a big thing. The assenting and how to communicate to the kids. Um, is a huge. I mean, you you will have seen, especially for adults, um, informed consent documents. These things are in dozens of pages. Mm. And as a scientist, I've read these and not understood them sometimes for adults. Or I've understood them and said, I'm not sure your general layperson going into a trial getting radiation knows what a becquerel is. Like, oh no, I do, but. I'm pretty sure most people don't. Um, for kids, you see the same things. So it's it's fascinating to me. Again, I, I came from a scientist background, not a pediatric background. Fascinating for me to see these. And the they're not nice tables or pictures a lot of the time. Or they're not really, it's like they're more addressed at the legal requirements yeah. rather than trying to help you understand what yeah. is that would be a huge chance yeah. by the way you're you're starting uh, an enormous topic and yes, uh, actually i'm i'm inviting uh, to the podcast uh, a lady the professor in translating 
um, complicated literature, medical literature to open lay patient language. And I'm actually mad at her because she's not, she's not coming from a clinical research world, but at the same time, she's dealing with these complexities all the time. And I think we can actually learn a lot, really good lesson um, about literally communication in healthcare. How do we communicate a complicated topic? And actually, uh, yes. if you were to speak about generally the, the biggest problems of healthcare, the biggest like, issues, it's about communication. How much time doctors, nurses have for communicating things with patients, how they're communicating. We have, we have like really high expectations what doctors and nurses can do and, and yes. have the time to do most, like mostly. And it happens in clinical trials as well. Anyway, you raised some really, really big topics. Um, I see three, three chunks when you talk about changes or focuses. And I thought about this before and, and um, you know, how we like to simplify things sometimes. Um, there's control. So giving the control and speaking um, to, to the patients. There's communication, which we just said. So that's two Cs. And another is comfort. So a big thing in, I would say, probably all trials, but for pediatrics especially, is anxiety, um, anticipatory anxiety, and trauma. Uh, real mm. medical trauma. And, and that sounds like a really strong word. This is our... Um, a current um, big um, area of exploration for me. So um, yeah. you stop me if I start getting on the soapbox too much. Um, but medical trauma can arise for uh, pediatric medical trauma for kids as well as their care circle. So their mm -hmm. caregivers um, in any medical, like through a traumatic um disease but a procedure um and it's different by the person like i'd mentioned before you know how many people like needles uh how many people have phobias of needles and why do they have those phobias of needles and are needles really that bad so you think of clinical trials they have all of these additional tests lots mm -hmm. of just using needles i mean think the pk trial even a vaccine trial it's you yeah. know but you're always taking blood and you're and jabbing and everything. And um, it can be traumatic. And, and if you're dealing with a disease where somebody has been or a condition um, that's longstanding, it's not an acute, it's for kids, again, it's rare for the most part. Um, but that means these are some really troubling conditions that the family has had to deal with. And so they're coming into the situation with some trauma. And then we yeah. can exacerbate it. Exactly. So the comfort, the third C I would see at as, as being is that's a big change in the industry because that is not addressed. Um, it is addressed in some, you mentioned um, this person who's not in the clinical trial world. There's a lot of physicians, um, a lot of uh, nurses, a lot of care people who are addressing trauma, like trauma-informed care at their sites. I think we need that in clinical trials. I think we need to support sites in recognizing when somebody comes through the door, the child, the family, sometimes they've had to drag their kids there and they're yelling, it's just a needle. Well, again, how many people have longstanding phobias? If you think back yourself, 
or anybody you know or your children, every one of those experiences can turn into something bigger than it is. Um, And we can dismiss it. And we have our, you know, scheduled events and we're like, come in here and take these blood tests. And first thing we say is reduce those as much as possible. But what can you do? What comfort can you provide? And in the clinical trial structure, which has struck me recently, is that there's nothing in there that requires Mm -hmm. you to address that. And in fact, there's almost disincentives. Like it falls into the patient engagement. There is a patient comfort bucket with some arbitrary dollar cap. And you're like, no, no, but wait a minute. Think about the patient. You could provide something and and everything is through the lens of incentive. Oh, well, are you incentivizing them to join the trial? There's ways around that. Don't fear it, right? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, do something that'll help. And there's a lot of organizations. There's a lot of um, parents and and groups who are trying to bring awareness to this. But mm. again, as a parent, trying to drag your kid to um, an appointment and each one could get harder if it's a bad experience. Like my daughter had a blood test when she was young and they had to like strap her down in one of those big cell yeah. things. She's not going to go for another blood test. If you're in a clinical trial, you have to and, do it all the time. Yeah. And you don't have to do that. That is called a dropout rate in our yeah. lingo. Exactly. That, right. So, yeah. So it can be win win. Um, yeah. Just having some yeah. empathy and recognition for the long term. And then I'll get off the soapbox because then we can get into the long term health consequences of these traumatic events mm-hmm. and we have a role there as clinical trial um, professionals but we're finding i'm finding personally in a lot of situations hey what comfort can we bring um to this situation there's a lot of um tests there's a lot of going to the hospital kids can start being terrified of going to the hospital even driving by the hospital when they're not going yeah. can inspire anxiety and what happens Usually, the parent is going to start not going by the hospital until they have an appointment. So there's avoidance, right? Mm. Um, well, but if there's a school, like kids are amazing because they have these superpowers, usually yep. through play and imagination. And while they have these huge fears, they actually can be easily got around yeah. through yeah. them by, by tapping into the play, right? Yeah. So, so I, it, yeah, if I'm to summarize, if I'm to summarize, maybe we should stop like most sponsors, heroes, maybe we should stop thinking, investing money and budgets into enrollment assistance only, you know, and start yeah. uh, like investing in more, maybe psychotherapists and uh, psychologists and like services, because there are plenty of services, by the way, like nowadays, especially after COVID. Uh, plenty of services that provide you with even remote support um, and, and maybe investing in more uh, eye pleasant and, 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 and interactive content, not just documents, but maybe videos and maybe rooms for, for kids and maybe, I don't know, like even theaters and bring together the kids. And I don't know, there should be a way to bring this comfort because you're absolutely right. And it's not just for pediatric research. It's across the board. We're all sorts of clinical trials. The way in some countries, if you are, for example, patient living cancer, um, like you should go to like some sort of psychotherapy, for example, 
it, it's a mandatory thing. Maybe that should be mandatory also when you're in a clinical trial, no matter the, the disease, actually. So that's... Yeah, so your, almost yeah, like maybe it should be mandatory. The solution, what the solution is, shouldn't be mandatory. And boy, I could I could come up with a lot that I won't do all the plugs for my yeah. Um, But maybe the requirement to look at it. So assessing... Um, what level of trauma or anxiety might be provoked by this? And if it meets a certain criteria, then you are obligated to address this somehow. Yeah. And maybe it's by counseling. And I just did see one of those this past week. And then there was all these regulatory challenges. They're like, oh, well, will we have to do all of these requirements because we're providing this completely voluntary counseling session, right? Mm -hmm. So suddenly there were all of these logistics. And yeah. so that kind of scares them away. It, it takes some yeah. really committed individuals um, in these companies. But we have those. Look at our industry now. Yeah. Such yeah. amazing things. We can do this. So Yeah. And we can also look from other industries' examples and, and just try. At the end of the day, it's worth it. We need to try and start somewhere. Uh, Jackie, that's been an incredible conversation. I have one last question, though, or like one really last question. Because before we started... Uh, you and I, we were discussing that both you and I were moms of kids. In your case, teenage kids. In my, in my case, younger kids. And I, I, I just cannot, like, could not ask you this question. Would you agree for your kids to be a part of a clinical trial? How would you feel about it if you have to yeah. agree on that? Yeah, that is a fantastic question. And um, it would depend on the trial and my need, of course, right? So, you know, if you have an untreatable condition um, and there's no other options, mm -hmm. then maybe. But I can tell you as a professional, as you would, you know, my, my answer would be yes. For if the, if the need was there, if it was a well-designed trail, I'd be looking at it super carefully. I'd be like, I am not reading a 50-page um, informed consent. And I, I want to mm -hmm. have like the schedule events really clear. I want to know why I have to go in for mm -hmm. that test because I don't okay. understand all of that. That's where bringing people in before patients and professionals and, and experts in before can help cut down on that. Um, so yeah, in a well-controlled um, trial, because the advantages of the trial is you have more access to care. You have more time to ask those questions. I'm a scientist. Um, you you have more access to the science and and doing yeah. something cutting edge. Uh, but I would want there to be recognition for what uh, we were going through. And a big thing is too, I would discuss it with my child um, yeah. in a way that they would understand. And frankly, right now, as having a teenager, I mean, he may say no. So it would be, and I would respect that. Depending, you know, yeah. Um, yeah. and and fear again would would need to be a factor. My own fear, child's fear, um, that sort of thing. So, yes, uh, with a whole lot of caveats, uh, and it yeah. is it is the lens that's the first thing yeah. I go to. And actually, the first pediatric clinical trial that I worked on was in my feasibility days and it was one of my very early feasibility days and it was for three to five year olds and I can't go into any details of it so it'd be obvious what it was but I remember talking to the sponsor person 
because um, it was not feasible. And I remember talking to my contact when we were in the big meetings, everybody's talking industry. But then when I talked to her and she was a parent, like we got to know each yeah, other pretty yeah. well. And I said that to her. I said, look, would you put your child? I was getting very frustrated because it was not feasible. Big yeah. gone. And yeah. would you put your child in this trial? And that is what got through. Exactly. So it's a question we all need to ask. That's exactly. That's the reason why I asked you this question. I ask myself uh, like all the time when we discuss pediatric research and I always say, parents, we're ready. Like I can speak about myself. Of course, I'm ready to do whatever so that my kids are healthy and well and, and live and whatever and, and succeed in life. But then there will be always this, if, am I doing the right choice for them? Because it's not my life that I'm putting in risk their life it's expert responsibility so i better know really well what sort of a risk i'm taking and i need to understand so going back to communication and again um i want to end this episode with kind of like appeal to everyone who is working in pediatric research or maybe not or haven't started yet first start planning earlier like jackie said start planning earlier and ask your question would you agree for your kids to be a part of this clinical trial and then think twice what sort of a protocol what sort of a sort of a setting and how much and where you're going to invest your body jackie thank you so much for this insightful conversation inspiration was always uh i'm pretty sure that many people will try to continue this discussion with you privately and like please go ahead and connect jackie she's amazing thank you once again well thank you so much this was this was a joy. It was nice to have a conversation and love talking about our shared passions. Hope you enjoyed listening to Trials with Maya Z. If you're interested to hear more about how clinical trials can serve patients globally, subscribe to the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. Have a great day.